All right, so um, I know there is this great divide and debate in America as to when you can begin celebrating Christmas. We're talking about this a couple minutes before church. Now, in the Denton household, we do not begin celebrating Christmas until the day after Thanksgiving. Okay, I got some head nods. Okay. So I can't wear Christmas t-shirts, listen to Christmas songs, or set up Christmas swag until we have given thanks and we have feasted on that turkey. Oh, okay. <laughs> now today, as we continue this fruit series and the Holy Spirit's work today of creating goodness, the goodness of Jesus into us, even though it's not after Thanksgiving yet, I want you to think about a line from the secular song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And the line is, so be good, you finish it, for goodness' sake, right? That is an excellent example of secular goodness. When a society cannot affirm the existence of God, that there is a God, that God is real, and that he is the source of goodness, society has to develop other motivations for its citizens to be good and do good. How can a society survive if those in power don't create these common motives and expectations for how we are to relate to each other? But here's a dilemma today. Where does and what does it mean for you to be good for goodness' sake? Who gets to define goodness, right? Is it those who are the majority in the political party here in America? Is that who gets to define goodness? Or in a state, and once you cross the state line, what's good in one state is actually not good in another state? Who gets to define goodness? Is it the people on social media that have enough followers and they influence enough people? Is that who gets to define good in this life? You should be able to see how dangerous that idea is, how problematic it is to not have God as the standard of truth and therefore as the standard of goodness. You don't have any standard, therefore, to say conservatism is wrong or Liberalism is wrong if God is not standard of truth. Or communism is wrong. Or capitalism is wrong. Or even that murder is wrong. If there is no bona fide standard of truth that never changes, who are you to say that murder is wrong? If there is no real standard of truth that doesn't change. If you get to define the standard of goodness... Who are you to say that murder is wrong or theft or physical abuse or fill in the blank? As Christians, we believe that God and God alone is the standard of goodness. We believe that God alone is good. Therefore, God is our motive for goodness. God gets to define goodness. So this morning, we are going to look underneath the hood at secular goodness being good for goodness' sake, and Christian goodness. Secular goodness, the idea that you are to be good for goodness' sake, is unhelpful. It is ambiguous. It's really unclear. And it is unsettling. 
So we're going to contrast this with the certainty of God's goodness today. And then we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit, who puts us in a position to experience the very definition and the source of goodness itself, which is God through Jesus. And then we're going to take a look at this idea that just like many other fruits of the Spirit, that goodness changes us from the inside out. And it spills over for us to share goodness with those that you previously thought you never would show goodness to, even the enemy. That's where we're going today. Let's get to our proposition. We're going to see this morning that the Holy Spirit shapes the Christian's desire to share God's goodness with others as they experience Jesus. So you can almost see this parallelism. The more that you experience Jesus, the more open you are to show goodness to people. And the less that you experience Jesus, the more of a miser you become. The more Scrooge-like you become. Okay, not till after Thanksgiving. Now, remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But Jesus is not physically present with us. So how do you and I get to experience Jesus? Like Peter, James, and John, they could have a lakeside fire breakfast with him. You and I don't have that luxury. How do you and I today experience Jesus? We experience Jesus by his spirit, by his word. And we experience Jesus by his body, the church. One of the reasons why you are called the hands and feet, the body of Jesus, because you get to express what God is like to people. It's a tremendous responsibility. To experience God's goodness, you must experience Jesus by his spirit, by his word, and by his church. Now, for a moment, let's look underneath the hood of secular goodness. Secular goodness tells you that you must be good for goodness' sake. Now, you tell a two-year-old that. Be good for goodness' sake. They'll look at you like, huh? I'm going to keep beating my friend right next to me, right? It is insufficient ethic to actually teach us what goodness is about and how to be good. And culture will tell us that the motivation of goodness is supposed to be selfless. You have to care so much for the other person, you have no selfish motivation in what you do towards another. You are not good for your sake, but for something's sake or someone's sake. But this motive falls short. Though it sounds philosophical, and it sounds romantic, and it sounds so selfless, it doesn't actually work. If we are honest, you and I would say that it is impossible on our own to always seek the other person's good in our lives, right? There are days we simply do not want to do good towards another. <laughs> there are days where we do not feel like anyone is doing good towards us, right? So goodness, like kindness last time, for the secular person, they believe that it's a work from the outside that if you do enough goodness, you do enough goodness, you're going to create the change that you want to see and be in the world. What happens when a person's insides don't match that secular call 
on the outside to be good for goodness' sake. Right? But Christian goodness is a work from the inside out by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures and the hands and feet of Jesus, the church. So God does a work on the inside. Christian goodness, like all the fruits of the Spirit, begins with God himself. So I want you to take a look at what David said in one of his prayers in Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, 8, David says simply, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love verses like this. You know how much like eating imagery and examples I've used in my preaching. I love verses like this. The experience of God is the experience of good. David invites you today to experience God. And David says you can taste God's goodness. You can see God's goodness. And we believe that the greatest experience of the goodness of God is Jesus himself. God alone is good. Now let's think about Jesus for a moment. Do you remember when the rich young ruler approached Jesus and asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He's a good Jew. He knows that it's a works-based salvation for them. And do you remember the rich young ruler addresses Jesus as good teacher? Now, do you remember Jesus' response, though? He says something like, why do you call me good? There's no one that is good except God alone. And of course, Jesus is right. God and God alone is good. No one is good. No one has the moral excellence to always act in such a way that it works towards the good in another person's life. We are beautiful image bearers of God, handcrafted, designed by God himself. But we are also broken too. So if we were to take a look at what this word for good means, that the Lord is good in Hebrew, what this means is that David is saying you can taste and see that God is the most satisfying, that God is the most pleasing. It's one of the grandest ideas ever expressed in the Bible. He is most pleasing. He is most satisfying. But there's a problem. And here at Heritage, we try to be upfront and real about problems and confront them, right? But here's a problem. Paul says it best, I think, in Romans 3.12. And actually what he's doing here, he's just quoting the Psalms, another prayer of David. And he says that all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. And here's a phrase I want you to look at. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Paul and the Psalms teach us there's no one who really desires to do ultimate good. In reality, America has it wrong. And whoever crafted that song lyric, there is no such thing as doing good for goodness sake. Secular goodness is an illusion. We have a dead desire for the very source of ultimate goodness, which is God himself. Therefore, without God, the greatest that secular goodness can be is whatever those in power say that is good. Whatever those who have the influence and the technology at their fingertips to give messages to you on your phones, they only get to define what good is. 
And we ask, how does this change? God is good. We don't desire the source of goodness. How does this change? Luckily, we have Jesus himself. And listen to what Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God is so good, so pleasing, so satisfying. He gives us his son to be our shepherd. Goodness is demonstrated in and through Jesus. Jesus is the gift of God. And this gift of God called Jesus, what makes him good is that he's a shepherd, which is the word for our English word, he's our pastor. Jesus says he is the good shepherd. And by his shepherding, by his pastoring, you get to experience what is good and pleasing and satisfying in this life. And how does Jesus accomplish this? He solves our Romans 3.12 problem. That's what he does. Jesus, as the good shepherd, gives himself. God gives his son, and the son gives up his life. And we see it here. He lays down his life as an expression of his good heart. Because he is God, and he alone is good, this good death by this good shepherd changes us from the inside out for good. His death puts his people in a position to enjoy God as they should, as their highest and deepest experience of pleasure and satisfaction and goodness. Something that you and I have lost in Adam and Eve. This is how Christian goodness is different than secular goodness. We are not meant to be good for goodness' sake. Because we can cross over the state line to Georgia, and their definition, unfortunately, of goodness is different than ours. They have different policies and different beliefs and different legislature that lets you know what is good. So Christians do not define goodness as being good for goodness' sake. It's ever-changing. We seek to do good for Jesus' sake, because he is good, and he gave his life for us. And that's what we're going to see today through Galatians 6. And if you're wondering, we will return to Galatians 6 in a couple weeks because there's another application to a fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness. We'll get there. Let's get to point one, though. In point one, you are going to see that it is the Holy Spirit who plants and harvests in the Christian. And like it or not, mock it or not, deceive yourself or not, he does this through pastoral ministry. That's his claim in these opening verses. During our week on patience, we learned that the Holy Spirit is a farmer. We looked at James. The Holy Spirit sows and he reaps. The Holy Spirit plants and he harvests. Now, from Jesus' soils parable, we learn that the word is the seed by which the Holy Spirit plants and tills and cultivates and harvests. And it is the church, the body of Christ, and specifically your church's pastoral ministry that is used by the Holy Spirit to plant God's word into you, the Christian. Therefore, we believe, whether it's here at Heritage or somewhere, you have to put yourself underneath the life of a church. Somewhere. Let's get started with verse 6. Paul says that the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The first thing that we see is 
This implies that there is a deep relationship between the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus, and the people of Jesus. Do you agree with that? This implies that there has to be this deep connection. Specifically, there is a deep and sweet relationship between pastor and congregation. The one who preaches and teaches and the one who receives preaching and teaching. Paul calls on the congregation here specifically to share all good things with the one who teaches them. Now, that phrase, the one who, uh, who shares, is the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. That means you, you become a yoke bearer along that person. Paul uses this type of yoking, illustration, farmer terminology to one of his pastoral interns in 1 Timothy 5. If we were to go there right now, you would see Paul tell this young pastor, Timothy, that he, he actually calls pastors a cow. Oxen, specifically. He quotes the Old Testament. And what he tells Timothy is that in this church that Paul left Timothy in, this young Christian who is now meant to be the main pastor of this church, he tells Timothy, as you're building this church and you are supporting this church and hopefully investing in this church where other pastors rise among and with you, that you're not meant to muzzle these oxen while they do their work. That's in 1 Timothy 5. Now that's farmer terminology, right? I'm not offended that Paul calls pastors cows because I love cows. They're cute when they're young. They are delicious, right? I'm okay with that. I love beef. But let's get into this terminology. The farmer should not burden the burden animal while he's being burdened for you. That's what Paul is saying. What does that look like? Because that's just imagery right now. That's just figurative language, right? Let's speak plainly. Paul says, don't restrict, don't hinder, don't hamper, don't make your pastor's job harder as he's working for you. That's the reality. We had to ask the question, how does a congregation do this? Paul says, if you were to continue to look at 1 Timothy 5, he would say, reward the pastor who works hard at preaching and teaching. You've got to ask why. And here's the reality. And some of you, your hearts aren't in this yet. I know, I've been around you long enough, but this is still the truth nonetheless. 99% of pastors and 99% of churches around this world are not in it for the money. There are some of you who think that they are. They're building churches to build their names and become richer. But you're singling out, we call it the, the straw man theory. You try to make all pastors and all churches to be that one example, that one big church in town. But you have to realize that the church in America, the mega church, is a minority. It's part of the 1%. And those, yeah, even though there may be 20 pastors who may make six figures, who knows, they're still the minority. They are still a part of the 1%. 99% of pastors and 99% of churches are not in ministry to become rich. But on the other hand, 100% of churches should seek to fully support 100% of their pastor's needs. That's what Paul is saying by this. Now, you've got to ask this question. What? Why is the church called to support their pastors 
and what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit's work of goodness in our lives? You should ask that question. This is eight verses after he says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. He says this. There is a direct link, direct link between them. So let's think about it. Pastoral ministry is a gift of God's goodness to the people of Jesus. How many of you were surprised last Wednesday at Gather when we looked at those lists of spiritual gifts and we discovered that gifts just aren't things, gifts are people. And pastors were on that list. Surprised? The Bible's not, because it said it. But it may be surprising for you. The Holy Spirit uses the words of Jesus to produce the character of Jesus into the people of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit uses preaching and teaching to do this. The Holy Spirit uses the words of Jesus to reap fruit in the Christian. So if you have a real and genuine desire to live for Jesus in this life, Paul's call is very clear this morning, whether it's through Galatians 6 or through 1 Timothy 5. He says, find a church and sit underneath the pastor. And if you can't listen to the pastor here, if you can't put yourself underneath the church here, there are dozens of churches elsewhere, and we're not in competition with them whatsoever. If you have a desire to live for Jesus in this life, sit underneath a pastor and let him sow God's word into you over time. Let him tend to God's word in you over time. And you'll experience the goodness of God in Jesus through the Holy Spirit by it. That's the claim of Paul. Let's see him address some objections in verses 7 and 8. He says, don't be deceived. Don't mock God about this. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But, contrast, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, these verses address the human response to Paul's teaching in verse 6. As broken image bearers of God, we are delusional. We are self-deceived. Admittingly so. We have blind spots. We are broken. And that brokenness, you know what it does? It skews your experience. It distorts your experience of what really is right and good and satisfying in this life. There are some people who are deeply satisfied by things that are not deeply satisfying. Or as C.S. Lewis says, that we are content with making mud mud pies in the slums when the offer of a holiday at the sea is given to us. We say, no thanks to the holiday. I'm okay making mud pies here in the ghetto. You see, you and I are self-deceiving. And Paul says, Don't deceive yourself on this. And don't mock God about this. Check your heart right now. The temptation is for you to reject anyone who speaks into your life, who wants to sow into your soul, from God all the way down to his under-shepherds and the church. You will naturally push back, and you will naturally mock God's intended way of working goodness into you. So Paul gives a warning, and he says, whether you sow by your flesh and what you want to do with your time and what you want to do with your life, or by Jesus' spirit and what he wants to do with your life, your life is going to produce something. Make no mistake, Heritage. 
You are producing something with your life today that you sowed days, weeks, months, years maybe prior to this. That's the real principle. You are going to produce something in your life. Your life is going to reap something. Set yourself as the farmer of your soul. Sow according to your ever-changing standard for what is good. And Paul says you're going to reap fruit from it, but he calls this fruit corruption. And what this word corruption means is that it's a decayed, distorted version of what God has intended. Like, you know what blueberries are supposed to look and taste like. That does not taste like blueberries. It tastes like something else. But set the spirit of Jesus, the word of Jesus, and the upper under-shepherds of Jesus as the farmers for your soul. So according to the Holy Spirit. And you're going to reap fruit that's not corrupted, that decays, but will last forever. He says you will reap eternal life. So the question you have to ask yourself, and I hope that you are man or woman enough to ask this is, who or what do you want to invest and reap and pour into and sow and plant into your life? There's many options out there. And you're going to open up your life for something to invest in you. What's it going to be? Let's think about the nature of sin for a moment. Sin is simply defined as thinking for a millisecond that you can live without God. What's smaller than a millisecond? Nanosecond, maybe? Is there anything smaller than nano yet? I don't know. We can apply it there as well. If you believe that anyone or anything is needed to live over God, then that thing or that person is your God. Okay. Now the result of this, this sin in us, that we foolishly believe that we can live this life without God, number one, it's the greatest plagiarism. It's the greatest robbery because you are made in the image of God. Basset hounds aren't. Human beings are. And you've taken something that God has created, and you say, no, 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 that's mine. I get to do with it what I want to do with it. It is the greatest plagiarism. Sin alienates you from God in the life that he designed for you to live as his image bearer. But the work of Jesus, by the spirit of Jesus, and by the word of Jesus, reconciles you back to God. Jesus destroys your alienation with his father and replaces it with adoption through his work of redemption on the cross. And the preaching and teaching ministry of a church, of any true church, plays a critical role in that reconciliation process. As human beings, we must acknowledge it is my nature and it is your nature to reject this. It's easy to mock and push back in God's plan of good for our lives. But nonetheless, God has determined for you to experience his goodness through his son, through his spirit, through his word, and through the ministry of his body, the church. 
non-Christians cannot do this. Non-Christians do not want to do this. They do not want to experience God as their greatest good. That sounds like a cult. They believe good is something they do. But if you are a Christian and you are truly tasting and seeing God as good, that experience of goodness is going to spill over. It's going to spill over into the church, and this little church can't contain all of your goodness. And it's going to spill over into people outside the church, which is what our point of application is about. Let's get to it. And our point of application, the call for you today, is to seek opportunities to share God's goodness with others while depending on his promise to not lose heart. And you can't do this if you think that your goodness is meant for you and for your people. Galatians 6 begins to answer what Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, looks like tangibly in the Christian. In point one, we learn that the goodness of God experienced is the goodness of God expressed back to those who sow and tend to your soul through preaching and teaching, through a church's pastoral ministry. That looks like literally becoming the fellow of your pastor. That's what fellowship is, to be yoked. It means becoming the benefactor of those who are doing good in your life. This means that a Christian should be radically generous to the church that they are a part of. If not here, somewhere. This means for heritage Christians that we should be radically generous with our giving. And this is coming on, on the cusp of traditionally in America where giving becomes the lowest for the last weeks of the month. And the normal way that God provides for a pastor isn't through a second job. The normal way that God provides for a pastor is through your consistent, joyful and sacrificial giving. Do not muzzle the ox while he's laboring for you. It's counterproductive for your soul. That's what Paul says. So do you want to see heritage sustain its preaching and teaching ministry for years to come? I just heard one. Okay, a couple more. Amen. Thanks, Diane. Therefore, plant your radical generosity here. Plant it here. Let the roots of it come down. But this does not stop with pastoral ministry. Verse 6 was just the start. In our application, we're going to see that we are to express the goodness of God that we've experienced through Jesus, though sometimes doing this can be disheartening. And then we're going to see a promise to help us fight when we are disheartened. And then we'll see who God wants us to show his goodness to. Verse 9, Paul says, based on all of this, okay, don't lose heart then. All right? I know you're going to want to deceive yourself. You're going to mock God in this. And you're going to want to lose heart. It's easy to lose heart. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For, because, reason, causation. In due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. Paul shares a promise with us, Heritage, and it's a promise you need right now for your soul. Let's clarify the promise. Paul promises, in due time, we will reap. That's the promise. 
We affirm that it is God through his spirit, through his word, that creates change in anybody that we love. We don't take the credit. We don't control the reaping. We affirm that God does reaping in his own time. There is a time and a season for everything, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. We cannot control when people are changed. All we can do, the one card that we can play, is being good and doing good in front of them until God creates the change. And for those of you who have committed your life to this, you're already on board with this, you know how disheartening this can be, right? Look at the next phrase. We will reap if we do not grow weary. Paul is not naive. He is wise, just like Solomon. This promise takes the human condition into account. Paul knows that Christians will grow weary doing good. And I'll be honest, I grow weary. I'm weary right now. There are times where I look back and say, it would, it would feel much more easier to work eight hours where I just do things with my hands. Even though they're soft right now, they would get calluses. And I can forget about the emotionally, mentally, and spiritually draining jobs of dealing with people. I'd much rather sometimes work with my hands, go dig a ditch, than to dig souls. To be honest, humanly speaking. So I'll be first to say, it's, it's hard work. It's disheartening sometimes. And I know many of you are weary of showing goodness to people in your life and you don't see any fruits in it. I know, because I bear those burdens with you, and I pray alongside those burdens with you. So is God, through Paul, forbidding you and I from ever being weary with the labor that you and I have? No, no. And to remind us, let's go back to the prophet Isaiah. God, through the prophet Isaiah, said this in the 40th chapter. God says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creators of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable, and he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. And I have depended on this verse since I was a teenager. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. We grow weary. Even vigorous young men stumble and grow weary. So a part of the experience of the goodness of God is experiencing God as the unweary one. The one that David says in Psalm 121 that neither sleeps nor slumbers. Can you imagine that? I mean, after one day of a lack of sleep, I'm terrible. Can you imagine? God never sleeps and never slumbers, yet still does this. Therefore, the experience of God and his goodness is your experience of him as the unweary one. We are the weary ones, and he is the unweary one. And because he is unweary, he can give strength to the weary. And that strength is what enables us to mount up with wings like eagles. 
to walk and run and not give up and doing good to others. So when Paul calls you in our text to not grow weary, he isn't calling you to be the energizer bunny. He's not. He keeps going and going and going and going and going. No. But he is calling on you to depend on the unweary one and to come to him when you are weary. That is the experience of God's goodness. Heritage. It is wearisome. It is a labor to express God's goodness to those in our lives. Because no one wants to have any authority over them. And as soon as you say something, you're usurping their authority and their autonomy. But we have a promise to not give up. In Matthew 11, Jesus calls on you to come to him. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Right. This means Jesus is the fulfilled promise of Isaiah 40. Jesus is the unweary one. If Jesus becomes the basis of your strength and perseverance, you will not lose heart. Now let's get back to verse 10, our final verse. That was the promise. Let's get to the application. He says, so then, conclusion, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. But especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do you see that priority? I try to emphasize it just now, facial expressions and tone. As Christians, we all have opportunities to do good to those who are in our lives. In our final verse, we see how we should prioritize doing good. We see Paul call on you and I as Christians to labor in doing good to all kinds of people. That is clear. Not just people with the same political messaging that you subscribe to, but all kinds of people. That labor of doing good is founded, predicated on your experience of God's goodness in your life. If you aren't experiencing God's goodness, you're not going to be good to people who are not like you. That's Paul's point. And this is the experience that God has loved you, is kind to you, shows himself as good to you, even while you were a sinner, even while you were his enemy, even as you were plagiarizing the very image that he created and, and, and fabricated into you. Because you are his image bearer. He built you for him, not you for yourself, for him. And you plagiarize that. You rob God of that. But how you spend your time and how you spend your money and how you spend your resources and your abilities and your skills and gifts. Naturally, you only want to love, be kind, and do good for those like you. Those who look like you, sound like you, your friends and family. We'll be lavish with them, but then we will be Ebenezer Scrooge to everybody else. You know somebody like that? It shows God's goodness is not done in them yet. Christians do good, especially even for those who are not like them. And Paul says, do this especially to your household of faith, which then necessitates that the church, therefore, is filled with people who aren't like you. They don't look like you. They don't have the same views about secular life, maybe, that you do. They don't have the same hobbies as you do. They don't listen to the same music. I made a confession that I secretly listen to Christ, uh, church 
Christmas music throughout the year. Some of y'all turned your nose up to that. I'm different than you. And we're putting this church together for a reason. For me to show goodness to you and for you to show goodness to me as proof that we are both experiencing it in God himself first. This must mean that doing good to the household of faith must be prioritized right alongside you being good to your own household. Do you see that? So where are you in that today? Are you lavish in providing for your household, but you are a scrooge to the household of faith? Let's make it practical. Would a couple denominations of dollar bills thrown in every so often to this household, would that be good for your household? And if not, why do you think that it would be good for this household of faith? Right? That's hard. So where does this leave us? Number one, I think that you and I today, we must take a hard, good look at our own goodness. we got to do that before we leave. Are you doing good to feel good about yourself? That's never going to happen. That's a rat race. You'll never accomplish it. There's not enough doing good that will make you feel good about yourself. Are you doing good for goodness' sake? Doing good on the outside is not ever going to change you on the inside. Not in a lasting way. Not in a permanent way. Two, I think you need to look at your doing good in relationship to the church, God's ministry, in Jesus, through his spirit, through his word, and with his people. God is so good, he gives to you. And chief among these gifts is his son to be your pastor, his son to be your shepherd. That's just what the word pastor means. It's poiemas. It just means pastor. Jesus is so good. He gave to you under shepherds. Throughout your journey in this life on earth, he has given you innumerable under shepherds while you wait for your shepherd's return. And we say here at Heritage this year moving forward that you are to open up your life for the church to invest in you and for the church to invest back in you. Practically, that looks like opening your heart and soul to the ministry of preaching and teaching, letting your pastor sow and tend to your soul. Practically, that looks like sharing with the one who does this ministry of good in your life. And you do this not by making some designated offering. This is for pastor today. That's not what we're asking for. You do this through your radical generosity in your normal offering. Under shepherds labor to tend to your soul while waiting for the good shepherd to return. And in return, Christians seek to be their benefactors, to work alongside them as they work while we wait together for the return of Christ. And then three, and finally, I think you are to look at your doing good to all kinds of people. It should not sit well with you if someone else in your life can say to you, you're only good to your family and nobody else. That's nepotism. That's favoritism. That's... This begins by looking at whether you are doing good to the household of faith. So you have to ask, 
do I make it a priority to be as good to the household of faith as I am to my own household? That's why Paul calls churches to call pastors and to look at how they treat their family, how they tend to their own home, because that's going to give you an indication of how they're going to take care of the church for Jesus. That's why historically, churches get into a candidate pastor's home life. They watch how they speak and treat spouse and kids, if they're blessed to have them, and how they manage a home, because that will give you clues to how they will run the church. And I think that this is an area where heritage Christians still need to grow and why my job here is not done. This kind of generosity is a priority, but I don't think yet that we have made it the special priority that Paul is placing upon this. But nonetheless, this is still a mark, and this is still a fruit of God's goodness in your life. The question is, who gets the feast on the goodness that God has given to you? If it's just your own, you're being a Scrooge. Here's the thing. You are never, I, yeah, I will be that strong and go never. You will never show God's goodness to non-Christians who are not like you if you are not showing God's goodness to Christians in the church who are not like you. Do you get that? We're different, all shapes and sizes and interests. We have one bond that puts us together. That's the shed blood of Jesus. And it's hard to be good to each other sometimes. It's our time, our money, our stuff. And you're never going to do it with somebody you don't even have the bond of Jesus with. The Holy Spirit indwells the Christian so they can experience Jesus through his word. And the Holy Spirit does this through your interactions with his body, the church. And the church is preaching and teaching ministry. This changes your heart to experience God's goodness in your life. And this spills over, and it looks like radical generosity to church and to all kinds of people. And you will make no mistake, you will be tempted to grow weary in this. Like, I'm already exacerbated, I'm ready to get out the door. That's what some of your body language looks like right now. It's crazy. Can you imagine being on this end and reading your body language? Even youths grow wearied and tired, young men stumble and fall. You will be tempted to grow weary in this. But because of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures, and the church, you can know the unweary one, Jesus himself, who did not grow weary in accomplishing the greatest good in your life, taking on the cross and death to become your resurrection. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and now you know goodness. So let us not be good for goodness sake.